Okay, folks, that's it. You've had your two minutes now. The fun's over. Come on, this is church. If you haven't come here to enjoy yourselves, settle down. Okay, great. My name's Paul. I'm one of the elders here. Um, if you haven't met me, um, I'd just like to add my welcome to the welcome you've already had. And I'd like to add a big welcome to Keith Gateskill. Those of you that don't know Keith, Keith leads Kingsgate Church in Kingston. It's a fantastic church. Um, do visit there. Um, if, you, if, you, if you're one of our number here, do visit there and then come back because this is your church. Um, but no, it's a, it's a wonderful church. We've got a fantastic relationship with these guys. Uh, we love them dearly. Um, you know, got to say, we, you know, we, we're like peas in a pod. I think, you know, what they stand for, we stand for. What we stand for, they stand for. So um, it's an awesome church. And I think from before you were here, we enjoyed a really good relationship with you guys. You came over. You said, hey, we're thinking of moving to Kingston. We prayed together. We had a lovely time. And we, we just kind of one heart with these guys. So I can't recommend Keith highly enough. So let's give him a big round of applause as he comes to speak to us. Hi, everybody. Um, great to be here. It just uh, adding to what Paul said, I, we're so blessed in this borough to um, have a real genuine friendship and, and uh, love for one another among the churches. And uh, when I've been contemplating and thinking a little bit about the um, election, I mean the uh, referendum and what has taken place, I think one of the things which has, for me, been so stark is, is actually in many ways how divided we are as a nation. And uh, I think in the place of this division, where whether it's young and old, north and south, uh, university educated or not university educated, whatever it might be, the church has an opportunity to bring a healing of unity in this nation. And, and one small part of that is demonstrating the unity that we have among ourselves. And I think God's even pre been preparing us for that in the context of Kingston, because we have a genuine, genuine friendship. It's not like sometimes you have to play the ecumenical card, you think, and you've got to grit your teeth and go to those functions, because you're all because I'm a pastor, I've got to be friendly to the other pastors. But it's not being like that at all. There's just a genuine grace and friendship. And um, this, uh, this weekend, my wife, Michelle, uh, was ministering at St. Paul's in Kingston, and I've got the opportunity of ministering at, at King's Church in, in, in Kingston, and it's just great to be part of this big family. One of the, the ideas in my mind, and I will get to the text, uh, I know I've got to get to the text, um, but one of the, the desires in my heart is that we would increasingly see ourselves as the, the church in Kingston, uh, more than Kingsgate, but the church in Kingston, uh, more than King's Church, the church in Kingston. With all our flavors and all our differences and, and all the different ways we do things, but to bring something like that and to demonstrate that we have a ministry of reconciliation, that we, have a de we demonstrate that in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be together. Wow, isn't that powerful at a time like this? Anyway, as you may, if you don't know me, um, as you may have guessed, I, I, I wasn't uh, born here. My accent betrays that. I was born in South Africa. And uh, grew up there for 25 years. In fact, last night, um, I went to my school that I went to. It was 150 years old uh, this year. And we went to a reunion with uh, all these um, ex-schoolmates of mine from many, many years ago. It was quite interesting. But anyway, that's just a little bit for extra. Um, there, uh, we were born in South Africa. Uh, 1995, my wife and I came over. We came over to travel, see the world. I'm a chartered accountant by profession. That's what I studied. And I thought, well, I'll come travel around the world, make some money. And that was 25, 21 years ago. And uh, if I'd known that God was just going to change my life so completely and uh, give me such a heart. We're going to be preaching from 1 Peter 
chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. So if you have your Bibles, um, I do think from uh, the, the, the notes I got from Phil that you use the ESV. So if you do use the ESV, you will be able to follow me. But if you don't, you will be able to get the gist as well. I'll read it and then I'll get into the preach. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's funny, as I was preparing for this preach and I was looking through this text, I thought, my goodness, quite a lot of politically incorrect statements in one passage. Thank you, Phil, for giving me this one. (laughs) In this letter of 1 Peter, Peter refers to us as Christians quite often as exiles or sojourners. It's a common phrase, it's a common idea actually when you read through the scriptures of of how God's people are described right from the beginning all the way through as a people in exile. This idea of a people who are longing to get to a home but are temporarily living in another country. In fact, sometimes the story of salvation is likened to the story of a homecoming. It's actually one of my favorite descriptions of what salvation is. This idea of coming home to the place where you belong, to the place that you were made for. And we've got that wonderful parable of the, of the prodigal son. And uh, we see this picture again in there of salvation, of people coming home. God calling us home. I was in Athens in November last year doing some work there and meeting with some of the church leaders. And um, I'd heard a little bit, as you would have heard, about the refugee crisis in Greece, and, um, but hadn't actually seen it firsthand. And when I went to Athens, we went into this one little place. I, I think it was Victoria Square. I think that's what it was called. It doesn't sound very Greek, I know, but I think that's what it was called, Victoria Square. And I walked, we walked in there. And it was quite a nice area with um, little cafes, etc. Um, and in the midst were these hundreds and hundreds of refugees uh, from Syria and from Afghanistan. And, and when you looked at these families, some of them uh, in not a great state, I mean, they'd been, many of the refugees had had their lives somehow tidied up a little bit from the islands from when they'd come. But you saw these refugees and when you looked at them, you could see something of their home. You could see something of Syria, something of Afghanistan in who they were and how they were acting, the clothes they wore, the color of their skin. They, they looked different to the culture around them. And in Greece, and I would imagine in many places in Europe as well, there's a fear of this. Is this other culture going to invade our culture? And the fear that goes along with this. 
And maybe this is something of what the early church experienced at the time of Peter. These, these Christians, it's quite interesting, ironically, that Christians at this time were called atheists. They were called atheists because they rejected the polytheistic and the emperor worship of the ancient world, as well as the licentious behavior that was acceptable to the world around them. They looked different. Christians acted different. And they were seen in some quarters because of this to be a threat to the status quo. The Christian belief and the life that the Christians led was threatening to the status quo. You know, to be a Christian is to live in the midst of a clash of cultures. The culture and value system of heaven against the culture and value system of the world around us. To be a Christian is to live in this class of clash of cultures. On one hand, a culture undergirded and characterized by God's love. And on the other hand, a culture undergirded by self-love. On the one hand, a culture built around honoring God and loving others. While on the other hand, it is built around worshiping self and loving self. Living differently and looking different. You know, it's very hard. I know how you feel. I'll be honest with you. I'm usually quite vulnerable when I preach on the couch with Keith. So I open my heart to you. But I actually find it quite hard being a Christian. You know, if, if you became a Christian and someone said to you, you know, just everything's just going to be perfect and life's going to be easy, you, you were sold a, a false bill of goods because it's not like that. You know, being a Christian is, is, is sometimes hard continually living against the grain, continually being counterculture. You know, as a pastor, I mean, as a, as a Christian, I find it hard. You know, sometimes, I don't know whether it's just me, but sometimes you just want the continuous temptation to just be like the world around us, to think like everyone else, just to be like that. It's, it's hard not to give in to at times. And, then, you know, as a pastor, as I, as I preach and as I study the scriptures and, and try to preach as best as I can, sometimes when I'm reading through the scriptures and I look at it and I think to myself, this just looks weird compared to the world around us. This, this value system, this, this way we live, and, and, and as I even you know, look at today's passage, I thought, imagine if I had to take this passage and go and speak this at my daughter's A-level college and unpack this a little bit. They think I'm weird. It's sometimes hard continually living against the flow. All of us are impacted. All of us, to some measure, compromise and are influenced by the world around us. And that is why we can be so shocked or bemused by scripture. We contextualize scripture so much sometimes to take away the impact of it, to soften the blow of what it's trying to teach us. Like, for example, the encouragements that Peter is writing in this particular section of 1 Peter. It can seem foreign to us. In this, in this, in this particular section of 1 Peter, which starts from chapter 2, verse 11, what Peter is doing is he's talking to these churches who find themselves under the strain of living counterculture in a world. Uh, He's talking to these churches who are living under the strain and potentially the accusations and and the um, uh, not necessarily the physical persecution yet, but verbal persecution, relational persecution, being ostracized. And he's saying, how do you live in this world? What does it look like to live counterculture? How do you live like exiles in a foreign land? And as Peter does this, he goes and gives us a couple of examples. He talks about how do we live with the authorities and the government structures. He talks about masters and servants. And he talks about the analogy that he's gonna, I'm going to talk about this morning. He talks about marriage. A couple of things that strike me about what Peter 
describes in this section about living counterculture. Just a couple of things before I get to my main point. The first thing is, as you go from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through most, maybe to 3, verse 7, or, or beyond to 4, verse 11, it's the importance of how we live our lives. It sounds obvious, but how we live and treat people actually speaks louder than our words. And sometimes as Christians, we are often more known for the things that we don't do or don't like or disagree with. Sometimes we're more known for the things that we say than the things that we do. And I've, uh, you may have heard of examples. I know um, reading the history of some great men, people like Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi who was an incredible man, a, a peacemaker, a, a great rev- a revolutionary, a man who had flirted with Christianity but was turned off by Christianity because of the hypocrisy between the words that were spoken and the lives that were lived. And there are a number of other people I could mention, but our lives are hugely important. They speak louder than our words. And that is what he is saying in, in this particular passage. It's actually interesting because later in, in chapter 3, what, uh, what um, Peter says is he says, always be ready, I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. That people would look at you in your life and say, how do you keep on going? You know, something I don't particularly like, but it's true whether we like it or not, is that sometimes the most powerful testimony of who we are and who we believe and where our trust is, is when things are going badly for us. It's, it's an unfortunate thing and I wish it wasn't the case, but suffering is actually the thing which people want to see how we cope with more than anything else. How come you've still got hope in those moments? How come you, and some of you here this, um, this morning may be going through some really, really difficult moments. But even in those difficult moments, you have the opportunity to demonstrate to so many people the hope in which you have, something which they're crying out for themselves. The other thing which strikes me about this particular section of Peter is the ordinariness of Peter's examples. Um, One of the things that I I desire to see is I desire to see some of the spectacular things that I believe God has in store for the church. People being raised from the dead. And I've had the incredible privilege of, of being present as I've prayed for people and seen remarkable miracles taking place. Um, I was in Sri Lanka in last year and saw a man delivered of a demonic spirit right in front of me. I'm an ex-accountant. I'm not prone to exaggeration. I'm not sort of a, one of these people who, you know, there I was. I was praying for the man. The next minute he was on the floor. I, I want to see the more spectacular. I, I want to see cancers healed. I believe that's what God desires to be doing increasingly in our midst. But as we desire to see the spectacular, let us not forget the ordinary. And our faithfulness in the ordinary is profound. Let us keep faithful with the ordinary things. Let us keep faithful with how we pay our taxes, how we obey the rules that governments have put in place, as we would have heard as, we, as you looked into uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, how we honor and speak about the people that we work for and the people that work for us, and how we love our husbands and how we love our wives. And here comes the, the, the third point, if my, if, if the, the first two points being that our lives are so important as a testimony. The second thing being that the ordinariness of what Peter is saying, not the spectacular here, but the ordinariness of our faithfulness in these moments. But the, the third thing, and this is the, the real tough one in a way, I think, 
that my actions and behavior towards others are not determined by the worthiness or character of the people I might be interacting with, but rather my behavior towards others is determined by who I am and who I belong to. If I had to think of something which for you, just one point, I want to, I'm only going to try and bring one point from this passage, but a point that flows through the section on marriage, but flows through this, this whole section that, that Peter is talking about, is this idea that my behavior towards others is not dependent on their reaction to me. We see this in Peter's example when he's talking about the, um, the, uh, the government structures that are put in place. So he would have been talking about pagan government structures. But he says you honor them. It's because of who you are, not because of what they are or what they're like. Your masters, you serve them well, not because of their, uh, their merit, not because of their good or bad, but because of who you are and who your ultimate master is. And then it comes to husbands and wives, and we see it in Peter's encouragement here. When you read through the section that I looked at this, um, this morning and I read, it says, the wife is encouraged to act in a particular way, regardless of her husband. Regardless of what her husband is like, Peter is saying, I want you to love and to honor and to submit to your husband as if submitting for me. It's in the, in the phrase there which says, even if some, and I'm putting the word, even if some husbands do not obey the word, the Greek word that is translated obey the word or not, sorry, to not obey, the Greek word translated not obey suggests a pattern of life characterized by disobedience and actively living a life contrary to God's standards. We are talking about husbands who deliberately set themselves against God. We're talking about husbands who are intentionally living lives opposite to the value of the life, of the values of their wives. Here is a situation where in many ways we could say, surely we've got irreconcilable differences. But Peter says no. He says to these wives, he says, I want you to be the best wife that you can possibly be to this husband. And then it gets to the husband and he says, the husband is encouraged to act in a particular way without any reference as to what he should expect his wife to do. In fact, the only motivation that is given is the motivation of a healthy fellowship with God. And I'll come back to that. Both husband and wife are encouraged to act in a particular way to live as absolute blessings to their spouse because of who they are themselves and because of whom they belong to, God. I thought about this sometimes. Um, I was reading a number of books in the area of grace. And I thought, imagine this. Uh, imagine you turn over, you wake up in the morning and you turn over and you, you, you see your wife and you say, you know what, Michelle, Regardless of how you treat me today, regardless of the words that you might say to me that might hurt me, I want you to know that I'm going to love you. Because I'm loving you, not because of what you do, but because of the promise I have made before God. And I'm going to love you because I know that I'm loved by Him and that I belong to Him. And that's why I'm going to love you. Not based on your response to me. 
That is radical. You see, we live in such a conditional world. We are brought up with conditionality. I will be nice to you dependent whether you, whether you deserve it or whether you have merit. If my kindness, my goodness towards you, my forgiveness towards you. You see, what we're talking about here in this thing about marriage is, is far more than marriage. This is about all our relationships. This is what Peter's saying. All our relationships are based firstly and foremost on our relationship with him. That's what drives it. But we live in a conditional world and our, and, and our brains begin to flatline when we begin to think of acting and behaving to one another without a conditionality. It's funny, you know, when you look at all the instructions in the New Testament regarding our behavior to others, it's to enable the other person's job, the other person's actions to be easier. All the instructions in the New Testament regarding how we are to behave are more to do with the benefit it will have to others rather than the benefit it will have to us. For example, in Colossians, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Father, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So fathers, act in a way to enable your children to be good children. And children, act in a way towards your parents so that they will enable so that they will you enable them to be good parents to you. Let's fill that out. Husbands, act in such a way that you create an easy place for your wife to be the wife that she needs to be under God. And wives, act in such a way towards your husbands that you make it easy for them to be the husbands that they need to be under God towards you. This radical idea of loving people unconditionally. But you know the wonderful thing about this? I mean, you, I mean I, 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 in my preparation here for 1 Peter, I, I was reading through all these sections, the build-up to my passage and afters, and I'm thinking, wow! I mean, last week you, I mean, last week or the week before, you were, I mean, no matter what your master is like, just serve him. Well, that is weird for our world. It is strange. We don't, we don't give advice like that. Trust yourself to Jesus. He is the one who will justify me. He will be my defender. We don't give that marital advice in this world. But Jesus never calls us to, here's my second point from this. Jesus never calls us to do something that he hasn't done himself. You see, one of the things that flows through 1 John, in fact, doesn't just flow, sorry, through, I'm preaching through 1 John and Kings, Kingsgate, that flows through 1 John indeed, but also flows through 1 Peter, in fact, flows through the entire New Testament is do what Jesus did. Follow Jesus, imitate Jesus. When you are struggling, remember he struggled too. When you are, uh, um, you know, uh, undergoing persecution and difficulty, remember his example. The continued cry through the New Testament regarding our actions is remember his behavior. Remember the way he acted. He asks us to act in a particular way because he did exactly the same and because to do so when we act like him will bless us. One of my favorite passages is John 13. It's that famous passage. Well, if, uh, if you are, are new to the faith or you um, are not a Christian, you might not be that familiar with it, but it's a passage where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. 
I mean, he's washing his disciples' feet. These are guys he knows are going to betray him, knows are going to desert him. These are people who are going to let him down every single one of their actions. I would be offended by By last night, before I know that I'm going to be crucified and I'm hanging out with a bunch of people who I know are going to let me down, I would not be happy. I would want to be doing other things. I'd say, listen, I've given you enough time. I'm out of here for a bit just to kind of focus for tomorrow. But it says that he kept on loving them to the end. And there's this wonderful passage in that in John 13 where he says, Jesus knew, how could he do this? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he came from God and was returning to God. You see, Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. He knew how much the Father loved him. He knew what was in store for him. As you've read in 1 Peter, this inheritance held for us by him kept for eternity. He had, he had an awareness of who he was, where he was going, what the future held, who his God was. And therefore, because he was like that, Jesus had perspective and he was able to love radically. See, if you get your identity or your meaning or your wholeness from your spouse, then your behavior towards them will be intrinsically linked to their behavior towards you. Let me just say this, you know, because we're talking about marriage. Being married doesn't make you a proper person. Being married doesn't make you whole. Being married doesn't make you complete or give you meaning. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said to them, "Better you." Listen, I don't want to unpack this whole other passage in Corinthians, but he says to, but he, in the context for this particular thing, he says, "It's better you don't get married." Now, he would never say that to people if it was robbing them of their wholeness, their identity, their meaning. And I know sometimes, I mean, I, it's, maybe it's easy for me to say, you can, you can say, it's easy for me, I've been married for 23 years, you don't know what it's like to be single. But let me just say this, that if you are single, don't crave a marriage partner to make you whole. Don't put that burden on somebody who they'll never be able to do for you. Um, there's a, there's a, a theologian I like, he's a, he's a Catholic theologian, um, He's married, so he's not a priest. I kind of qualify that. He's a Catholic theologian, but he's not a, he's not a priest. A guy called Christopher West. And I heard him speaking at the HTB Leadership Conference on uh, God, sex, and longing. Amazing uh, little seminar. It was packed. God, sex, and longing. You want to get a, you get a group, group of people into a lecture theater? All the people were there. And it was brilliant. Um, but he gives this example about um, him and his wife were going through a difficult time. They just for about five years they'd been really struggling, and they went to a, um, a, a restaurant, and they were sitting there because they just felt like things were getting back together again. It was really wonderful. So she says to him, she says to Chris, his his wife says to him, "What's really made the difference, you know, for you?" And he said, "You know what I've realized? Said, I realized that you can't satisfy me." And she said, "Me too." And he said, "All the people around them must be going. They're getting divorced. They should." <laughs> But you see, the remarkable thing was when they knew that their ultimate satisfaction could not be given to them by their marriage partner, but only by God, it enabled them to live differently towards their husband, to her husband, enabled Christopher West to live differently towards his wife. In all of this, if you are married, where are you getting your identity, your purpose, your ultimate security from? And if you're single, where are you getting that from now? 
If you know that you get ultimate satisfaction, satisfaction from your relationship with God and you belong to him, then that frees you up to, lo- to love radically without condition because you are no longer loving with an agenda and out of need, but because of who you are. Just want to just add something to this. Is it unreasonable to expect to be loved back? Is it unreasonable to expect the fact that if I act in a particular way, someone would act equally back to me? I don't think it's wrong to expect that. But it can't determine how we act. It can't determine how we act. I think ultimately, undoubtedly, it's important as I love Michelle, and, and Michelle loves me back, and that response is like a cycle which, which fuels further love in our, in our marriage. Absolutely. But when it comes down to the brass tacks of things, my love for Michelle has got to be held together by the fact that I'm a Christian, I'm loved by God, powerfully, majestically, and I've got an inheritance that will never fade, and my ultimate satisfaction and delight is found in him. And that enables me to love Michelle the way that God wants me to love her. The wonder in the gospel, the wonder of the gospel, this good news of Jesus, is that even though there was absolutely nothing inherent in us which deserved Jesus' affection, he loved us anyway. In the wonderful letter to the book of to, to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says, But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had no merit, We were not looking for him. We are described as his enemies, those who disliked him. In that place, Jesus died for us to remove our shame and muck and dirt of our lives and to give us his life. And he demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross, not because we deserved such love, but because of who he is and because he is love. I don't know if any of you have heard of a Christian author called Philip Yancey. Um, This quote from him from his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, he says, Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is and not because of who we are. And Jesus spoke about this in his famous Sermon on the Mount. I mean, talk about radical. Talk about radical. I was checking the time there. But love your enemies. I used to work in, um, do some volunteer chaplaincy work in, uh, in Felton Prison. And this was always just like the young guys would go, no way, sir. Every time I spoke about this passage. But love your enemies. And do good. I mean, listen to this for bad advice. I just want to say, look, listen to this for bad advice. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. I mean, that is a phenomenal piece of of advice, a phenomenal piece of the scriptures. Imagine if we treated each other. Imagine if we treated our husbands and our wives, not based on their actions towards us, but rather based on Jesus' actions towards us. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, the, 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 the area of divorce is a very, very complex thing. I understand that. My parents are divorced. My middle sister's divorced. Um, I understand the pain and the suffering of divorce. 
You know, when you look through the script, when you look through scriptures and um, sometimes as Christians, and I speak to people, they say, well, can we qualify for divorce because someone, my husband's had an affair or my wife's had an affair, so isn't it okay to be divorced and remarried? I'm not going to go into that, but I'm thinking that is so not what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't teaching us to find an excuse so that we could get out of something. The Jesus response is, I will love you again. I will love you again. I will forgive you again. And I will be the wife or I will be the husband that I promised I would be. That is the Christian response. In 1 Peter 2, 21, it says this before this passage. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Our marriages. This idea of loving people, not because of what they've done back to us, or their worth, or their merit, but because of who we are and who God is. Finally, I just want to finish off with this last thing, is that God watches our lives. I found this a little bit uncomfortable as I was writing it. He watches our lives. If we live lives of radical love like I have, or more importantly, as Peter has been describing, then we create an environment for both husbands and wives to flourish. We create an environment for marriages to flourish. The more I love Michelle, the more I get her, I create an environment for her to flourish and vice versa. But that's not a promise. That may not happen. And it is important to remember that although a flourishing marriage is a good thing to desire and something that God desires for us, our ultimate audience for the way we behave is not our husband or our wife, but God. God is our ultimate and most satisfying reward. In the letter to Colossians, Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for me. You see, God watches our lives. He watches what we do with our money. He watches how we act towards our employers. He watches how we act in the church. And he definitely watches how I treat Michelle. In this passage of 1 Peter, uh, just prior to the one I'm preaching on this morning, it says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The God who, it says in Revelations, walks amongst the church, walks walks among the lampstands as it describes in Revelations, and he walks and he sees. What does God see when he looks at the way we speak to, act towards our husband and our wife? The past, this passage finishes with a verse which really impacts me. I mean, the first time, uh, uh, it was about 14, 15 years ago, and 1 Peter was the first book I really, I went to town on in my study and my devotion. I mean, it took me about a year and I was reading through commentaries and going through things. And, and this little verse really struck me. It, said, it says over here, Husbands, live with your wives in understanding way and showing honor, da, 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 so that your prayers may not be hindered. Wow. And in my marriage, to Michelle, there have been a number of times where I have been arrested by that verse. When I've wanted to hold offense, when I've been angry, when I've been frustrated, whatever it might have been after over 23 years, I think it only happened once, hey, Mish? <laughs> but when those moments happened, one of the things that actually motivated me was say, I want my prayers to be heard. I want my relationship with God to not be hindered in any way by the way I treat Michelle. What a challenge for husbands that our prayers are hindered 
by the way we behave. They are hindered by the way we treat one another. They are hindered, husbands, by the way we treat our wives. <coughs> the ultimate motivation regarding the way I treat my wife is that it pleases God, the one before whom I must give an account for my life. As I love Michelle and husband her in the way that he desires me to, the closer and deeper my relationship is with him. And that is where I find the deepest satisfaction for my soul. Do we desire a deeper, more profound awareness of God and the relationship with him? Then let us husband and wife in a way that demonstrates crazy, undeserved love. And let us worship God in this way. Because as we love in that way, we do indeed worship him. All right. Can I hand over to you, Paul? That was really uh, challenging stuff. Really, really helpful. Can we get the band back, please? Um, we're going to worship in response to that. And um, in, a, in, a, in a moment as well, there's going to be the, the opportunity for prayer. And just as Keith was speaking, two things kind of jumped off the page and hit me. Sorry. Um, and, and you may have been spoken to in a different way. But the two things that really spoke to me was um, really for, for, for couples, um, if there are couples in the church that just need prayer. You know, whatever that's about, why not get some prayer this morning? You know, God's been speaking to us about, about um, many things in that passage really helpfully. Um, but I think for couples, really just kind of stirred in my heart, couples, let's get some prayer this morning. And, you know, you may be just fine. You, you know, prayer's not necessarily re remedial. It can be proactive, can't it? You know, you don't need to wait until your marriage is falling apart before you get some prayer. Maybe better to get some first. Yeah. So, so couples, get some prayer this morning. Guys are going to be over here. And the other, the other thing that jumped off the page for me when Keith was speaking was that he said, and he said, ultimate satisfaction is available this morning, but it's only available in God. You know, wherever you're looking for your ultimate satisfaction, if you're not looking to God, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking to the wrong person. So, if you want ultimate satisfaction. And, and you feel you're not getting it right now, get some prayer. Press into God. Ask him for ultimate satisfaction because only he can deliver it. There may be other things that you want to pray about too and there'll be opportunity for that. But right now we're going to stand and worship in, in, in response to that. So let's uh, jump to our feet. I'll just pray and then Daryl's going to lead us. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for the way you speak to us, Lord. Thank you so much for your kindness and your patience and your tenderness and for the intimate way that you speak to us through your word, Lord. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, we just want to say, Lord, um, we want to honour your, your word into our lives this morning, Lord. We want to be attentive disciples this morning. We want to be, we want to be like sheep just listening to the shepherd. Yeah, where do you want us to go, God? Where do, where do, you, want, where do you want to speak to me? Where do, where, where, do, where do you want to lead me this morning? Oh, it's about my marriage. Oh, it's about satisfaction. It's about something else. Maybe it's healing. Lord, I pray you just help us to be attentive this morning and to, and to respond to your word. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We do love you. Amen.